Now you could probably sum up the Australian attitude towards work as a necessary evil. That's probably what most Australians think about work. We all know we need to work, but we all know that work is bad. We don't like it. We don't want to do it. For many of us, working is what we do in order to put ourselves in a position where we don't have to work. You work really hard now so that you don't have to work later. You get the job done as quickly as you can so that you can knock off a bit earlier in the day. Uh, and for, uh, Retirement, for instance, is that little carrot on a stick that we're chasing with great expectation that when we can retire, then we'll truly live. That's when life begins when retirement happens. And boy, won't it be good. We'll travel the world, get to travel Australia in our caravans. We get to live in luxury retirement homes, get to go down to the lawn bowls, get to play some bingo at the club. Freedom, endless freedom to visit family, pick up some new hobbies. Now, this is true for some, but when you kind of assess the retiree in Australia, at least my observations, you guys can push back if you think that I'm on the wrong course, but I've seen something different. I've seen a lot of them spend away their pension on the pokies. I've seen a lot of them waste countless hours in front of the television, and most of them living in constant loneliness and despair. Now some, that is not true for, but there is a huge contingent in Australia that live like that, and we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to address it. You see, the Bible gives us a very different attitude towards work. And it's not the Australian attitude. It's not the attitude of work heaps now so that you don't have to work later. Work is not a necessary evil, but rather a cursed good. And when you change the way you think about it from being a necessary evil to a cursed good, you will completely transform your way, the way that you view work. See, God made us to be workers. And he's given us all a vocation, a calling, and a purpose in his world. Over the course of our lives, these things, of course, are going to change, they're going to transform, they're going to be replaced, but we never retire from the good work that God has planned for us to walk in beforehand. And this is what we're going to be looking at today. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about what it means to be workers, and not merely that work is good, but it's good to work hard and to grow in excellence with whatever vocation God has called us to. And this doesn't necessarily mean paid work. A lot of us have callings that we don't get paid for, but they are probably more important than our paid vocation. So I've got three points that I want to share with you today. And my first point is created to work. My second point is skill in work. And my third point is God's workmanship in Christ. And so let's get into it. Uh, number one, created to work. And I think before we get into this whole topic of work, we kind of need to lay a really good foundation. We need to understand what Proverbs means when it talks about work. So before we come to the book, we need to know what Genesis, for instance, says, because the book of Proverbs is written in light of Genesis. It's written in light of a world fallen and how to live in a world fallen. And Genesis tells us, at least in the first two chapters, what a good world looks like. We see in Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. To what? To work it and keep it. Notice, this is before the fall. The fall hasn't happened. Sin has not entered into this world. And what do we find? The dreaded word, work. It was originally good. We had something to do. And it was important work. It wasn't busy work. 
See, the book of Proverbs is operating under this assumption. Before the fall of humanity, working and keeping the Garden of Eden was the noble task that God had assigned to humanity. And this was part of humanity's greater purpose. His purpose was for them to be fruitful, to multiply and to fill the earth, to have dominion over the animals and to subdue the earth. And so God, uh, God started this beautiful garden. He made Adam and appointed him his kind of governing official on this world and said to Adam, extend the borders of this garden to the ends of the earth. Here's the garden I started. Your job is to push its boundaries until it covers the whole earth and is filled with people who glorify me. But we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a fallen world and we bear a curse. Genesis 3, 17 and 19. God speaking to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Because of this curse, our work is toilsome. It's hard. We sweat. It's not enjoyable. You get prickled by various thorns and weeds. Proverbs 12.11 says, Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread. But he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 12.27 says, Whoever is slothful will not roast his game. That means catching something he's hunted and then eating it. But the diligent man will get precious wealth. Proverbs 14.23 In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. So how does Proverbs direct us to live in a cursed world where our work has been cursed? It doesn't say, sit around, lounge around, avoid as much work as possible, don't work hard because it sucks, don't do it. They say, no, you're supposed to work hard. You have to work hard in this world. We can experience the same blessing of work that we once experienced in the garden. It's just going to come now with much greater hardship. Just like for a woman having birth and giving birth to a baby, it is a glorious and wonderful thing to meet that lovely child, but you got that child through a lot of hardship, didn't you? And you will continue to receive that child as they grow older with a lot of hardship. And it's the same with work. Work is not necessarily a, you know, a necessary evil to get good things like food or wealth, but Genesis teaches us it is to fulfill our created purpose. It's better to lean into work and accept the curse than to lean away from it and try to avoid the curse. Otherwise, you're going to get caught in a rat race where we work to eat and we eat to work and the endless cycle of sleeping, working and eating with no other purpose than to keep on existing until we eventually stop existing. But that is not the world God has created. It's not the idea we need to get from Proverbs. We are building something. We are heading somewhere. We are taking part in a story, in God's original task and purpose of bringing dominion to this world, pushing back the wilderness and filling it with people and things that glorify Him. You still have a very important task. This is why the book of Proverbs tells us to look beyond ourselves and to invest in the future. Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. See, work is not necessarily about laying up wealth for yourself. You remember the parable of the rich fool 
who after receiving riches in a harvest, lays it all up for himself and then dies, and someone who's not him is going to get all his wealth. Rather, we invest all the work that we do and we aim it in such a way that it reaches not merely just our children, but our children's children, and if possible, our children's children's children. And all the way down, if we can, make, if we can have work here on earth that lasts for the glory of God, then we want to be about doing those things. But it's not just about giving your kids money, because you can give your kids money and they can waste it. And they can live their life in a completely, uh, in a way that's just completely against what you want. Rather, you want to leave an inheritance that's not just mere resources, but a cultural inheritance, a moral inheritance, but most importantly, a spiritual inheritance. That you're passing down to the next generation things that will not burn away in the fire, but that will last like precious stones and gold. See, our jobs, our labors, our employments are incredibly important to God. And not only are they important, but God has called us to them. Now, the Australian church has largely decided to go back into like a medieval mindset when it comes to our labors and our works and our employments. What do I mean by that? Well, in the medieval period, there was a distinction made between what was holy and what was common. If you were called by God, guess what you became? A priest. You became a nun. You worked in the clergy. You worked for the church. But if you were common and unholy, what would you do? Well, you'd be a farmer or a blacksmith or a carpenter or an engineer. They were considered lesser employments compared to those who had been called by God. And we kind of still have this mindset that those who are in ministry, those who are called to the mission field, those who are called to serve God in some sort of way, they're in this other category. But then there's me. Not me, myself, but, you know, I'm speaking on your behalf. And I don't work in ministry and I don't work in all these things. So I might not be as called as that man or that woman that's working for the Lord. But that's just not true. See, the reformers had a very different perspective. One of their favorite things to say was this idea of everything being well-ordered by God. They believed that all of us were to live a God-centered life wherever we were, and that God called us all to our various vocations. In fact, the word vocation, you may not realize this, but it comes from the Latin word which means called. It means that your vocation you have been called to by the Lord. The reformers held that we must put God first and value everything else in our life in relation to God. And that means that if you're a tradesman or a doctor or an engineer, you are just as called to that profession as a pastor or a priest or a minister. Each man, woman and child are called to the set of roles and tasks and they are to employ themselves in those things diligently. Why? Because God is the sovereign king over this universe. And if he did not want you in that job, guess what? You wouldn't have that job. He would not put you there. Then we ought to live as those who are called then. If we're there, then we're called to be there. We're called to employ ourselves in this task. That's why Paul can say this in Colossians 3. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, I don't know how much Paul can rearrange any of those words to make it more clear. We are working not for men, but we are working for the Lord. Now, if God calls you to work, then this dignifies all work. Any job, any vocation that you are called to, it is dignified. It is not common work. 
It is holy to the Lord. It has been made holy by the fact that God has called you to it. Whether you're out mowing lawns or framing houses or crunching numbers or writing code, we do it all to the glory of God because we have been called there. We are working for Him. We're not merely working for our employers. William Tyndale said that if we look externally, there is a difference between the washing of dishes and the preaching of the Word of God, but as something pleasing to God, there is no difference at all because each have been called to it. Both are done to the glory of God. Both are as pleasing to Him because both are doing the task that He has called them to do. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, notice that whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. All throughout the Bible, God is interested in your employment. For instance, in Exodus 31, we find the first man who has ever been said to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, there's probably, there might have been men that existed before then, but this is the first man that we know, guaranteed, specifically said that he's been indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Can you guess who he was? Named Bezalel, I believe. Yes, Bezalel. What did he do? He was a craftsman to build the tabernacle of God. He was a skilled man in woodworking and metallurgy, and he glorified his God by doing what God called him to do. See, God values these things. Men who are skilled, women who are skilled in their job. It talks about the women who were skilled in the art of uh, weaving, who built a lot of the... Um, the fabrics and the curtains that were used in the tabernacle. They were specifically called because they were skilled in what they did. And God dignified their work by calling them to one of the most holy tasks to create a housing for His glory. Now, whether we read Genesis or Exodus or the Proverbs or the New Testament, we find that we are all called and we are all created to work. But we're not just created to work in general. We're created to skill in our work. And that's my second point, called to skill in work. Let's have a look. Proverbs 16.3. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Proverbs 18.16. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. Proverbs 22.29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. See, Proverbs isn't just calling you to hard work, like I said before, with toil and industry and all these things that you apply, but skillful work, being good at it, applying yourselves to the best of your ability. Excellence in our vocation is something that we should all strive for, so that after years and years of experience and diligence, we are exceptional in our calling. Can you remember Joseph in the book of Genesis? Now, he did not live a single day of his life as a slave until he was 17 and was sold and carted down to Egypt and spent his time as a slave doing the most menial and servile tasks imaginable. Now, he could have said, this is beneath me. This kind of work, I can't imagine, I'm, I, can't, I can't believe I'm doing it, and despise the work and do as little work as possible and never apply himself. But that's not what Joseph did. We remember when we're going through Genesis, he worked diligently and was given favor by God, eventually getting into the role of the chief steward over all Potiphar's household. And then there was a false accusation made against him. He was put in prison and he could have felt sorry for himself. Here I am in prison. There's no work to do. There's nothing to be done. But he realized, 
I'm called here for whatever reason. I don't understand what God is doing, but here I am in prison. And he diligently applied himself until he, a prisoner, was running the entire prison. Amazing. See, he worked hard and he was skillful. And guess what? He stood before the king. He stood before Pharaoh. I believe that Proverbs, when it, when it says that a man's skillful in his work, he will not stand before obscure men, but before kings, probably had Joseph in mind. Or at least Joseph is there somewhere in the background. Because this person will get noticed and they will get recognized for their diligence and God will give them favor. This isn't just excellence in our employment, but everything that God has called us to. A man might be called to be a truck driver, for instance. But the same man who's a truck driver might be called to be a father and a husband. Now he has three vocations, three callings that have been given to him by God. Likewise, God calls women as well in their employments as well to be mothers and to be wives. And God expects both of these to apply themselves diligently to their calling and to exercise their roles to the best of their abilities, whether it's in discipline or provision or moral instruction or encouragement. We see this clearly in Proverbs 14.1. It says, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. This concept of a woman building up her house is best described by the Proverbs 31 woman. What did she do? Proverbs 31, 18 and 19. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. See, she knows that she's got to work hard, but she doesn't just work hard. It says that her merchandise is profitable. She's good at what she does. She's skillful at what she does. And she applies herself diligently, even working into the night to create these beautiful clothes which she sells and earns enough money later to go purchase a vineyard. It's a pretty, pretty blessed woman, this Proverbs 31 woman. But none of this, we notice, is to benefit her, but rather she's using her wealth to bless her family. We see all throughout Proverbs 31 is the direction is towards her family, but then we also see that she helps those in need around her. The very next verse is verse 20, which says she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Now that is a woman blessed by God. She is a woman who is greatly skilled in her calling, in all of her callings, right? Not just one. She hasn't separated one and said, this is where my energy is going into and to hell with the rest of these. She has gone to all my callings. No, I'm going to be skilled and apply myself diligently. And this is the same, obviously the same case for men in all of our callings. We see fathers are called constantly in Proverbs to take good care of their family, to pay close attention to their flocks, to pay close attention to the provision for their family. Uh, it says in Proverbs 23, 24, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad in him see we diligently apply ourselves to the roles that we have and so proverbs it's not just about our employments where we earn money but our various vocations that god has called you to not all of us have these vocations but some of us do and if we do we apply ourselves god calls each of us to excellence and when we do this we will find ourselves living satisfied and content lives in this world accepting our lot from god now, it doesn't mean that you have to be the foremost expert in all of Australia in whatever field that God has called you to. You do the best job that you can do with the skills and talents that God has equipped you with, right? You're not in competition with other people. You're only, if you're going to be in competition with anyone, it's with yourself. We're applying ourselves to things. 
But does this mean we're trapped in our job? If God calls you to something, are you trapped in it? Now, if you're a father or a husband or a mother or a wife, unfortunately, you can't not be a mother or a father anymore. You can't bail on that responsibility. It's the same with our marriages. But with our professions, there is a bit of wiggle room. So how do, we, how do we juggle this idea that we're called to our workplace and under what circumstance can we say that God is calling us elsewhere because we ought to be where God has called us? Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 7.24 not to quickly change our states, whatever they may be. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let, uh, there let him remain with God. In context, he's speaking about our marriages and he's speaking about our employments. And he's saying, don't be quick to change things up. Don't just rush around trying to find something that's going to make you happy or that will work better for you. You have to be very careful. We have to be reluctant to make any big changes in our life, such as where God has called us to live or what job we should have. The reformers used to emphasize the necessity of sticking to the course and not flitting to or fro trialing and choosing different professions for every change you get robs you of your opportunity to grow in skill, to grow in excellence, and to put down your roots in a community and to grow attached to the people God has placed in your life. We live in a very transient society here in Australia where we change things at the drop of a hat and we do it often to our detriment. But this isn't to say that we can't make changes. So I'm going to give you some principles and I got these principles from the Puritan Richard Steele and I think they're pretty Pretty awesome, written back in the um, 17th century. The first thing we need to do when you're choosing a vocation, whether it's a new job or your first job, whether it's a marriage or whether you're going to move somewhere, we ought to give it the attention it deserves. It's wrong to focus on such weighty and important matters without giving it serious thought and reason. Some people don't do the heart searching. They don't really think about it that much. They go, oh, that might make me happy. Quick, let's make everything happen really quick so that it ends up occurring. So first, we've got to give it a really good thought. Secondly, we ought to consult with godly, discerning people whom we respect, especially those who have the same calling that we're thinking of going in. Right? If you were thinking of becoming a tradesman in a certain field, let's say you want to be an electrician, Maybe go talk to Shem, who was an electrician. Maybe go work that through with someone who has that calling. If you're thinking about getting married, go find someone you respect who's married and say, do you think this is a good idea? This is a good prospect. Should I enter into this marriage? Uh, thirdly, we need to ensure that the decision or calling isn't harmful to your soul. If you're a little bit greedy or you've stolen some money out of your parents' wallet, you might want to stay clear of an accountant because those little things may turn into big things when money's in front of you. Uh, fourthly, we seek the Lord's providence in prayer and fasting. We make sure that we bring these things before the Lord. We don't leave him out of this. He's the most important aspect of it because we're just trying to discern where he is calling us. And lastly, and the reason why this is last is because it's the least important, do you desire this change or will it cause undue misery or grief? It is worth working through. Is this really going to like, mess your life up? and you're going to hate it. And there is a sense in which God will give you a desire for a task that you ought to be doing. Now, some of them, it could be that you're just really anxious and it's a sin that you need to get over. Other times, maybe the alarm bells are going off and they ought to be going off. 
If you can work through all these things and make the change, then you should accept this change as a calling from God himself. You have to be able to say, thus saith the Lord, with the decision that you're going to make. And then you make the decision and you're in that circumstance and you receive it as a circumstance that's come down from God. But if you detach God from all this and act as if he's not involved and he doesn't care or that you made the wrong decision, then you will end up constantly in anxiety. You'll end up constantly doubting the Lord. So whether it's a new job, a marriage, a new church or a new location, make sure you can say to it, thus saith the Lord. My third point is this, God's workmanship in Christ. Proverbs 3, 19 to 20. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deep, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down the dew. Proverbs 8, 27 to 31. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above and he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. It's amazing. Those verses in Proverbs teach us that God himself is the master tradesman. That God himself is a wonderful designer. That God himself is a brilliant engineer. And he is a wondrous architect who with skill and wisdom beyond all human comprehension set in place the laws and beauty of this entire universe. He made all things through his brilliance. And all the laws of nature are being his handiwork. All things happen as according to the laws of God. All things obey Him according to the laws of God. All these things are called by Him to do this. And we are likewise called as people in this world so beautiful and complex and intricate that we can never understand that majesty and glory with which He made it. This is why it's insane to say that the clergy or those in ministry are especially called by God. They are called by God. No, no question about that. But when in all of our labors and skill and work, we are imitating the God in whose image we are made because he is a worker and he makes things and he is wondrous in his design. We are called to imitate the one in whose image we are made. In Proverbs 8, wisdom here is personified as being described as with God the Father during the creation of the universe. And we know that the New Testament picks up this language and applies it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus was there with the Father at the creation of the universe. He was like a master craftsman. Jesus came as the wisdom of God. The Apostle Paul loves to refer to Christ as the wisdom of God. John describes him as glory as from the Father. Uh, Christ, who was there during the first creation, came down to be with us. And to begin a new creation that he is doing and he is building like a master craftsman. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Christ is making all things new. 
and he will be culminated in this new creation that will come. And we are that foretaste, the inauguration of the kingdom that won't be fully realized until the end of this world. And so Christian, I want you to know this. You have been remade. You are a new creation. You have been made by this master craftsman, Jesus. Listen to Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship. Very, it's just tradey Greek language right there. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, we are saved by the work of God to be workers of God. Ephesians tells us that we are created in Christ for good works, works that are prepared beforehand. And we are called to a higher way of being, a higher way of thinking, and a higher way of working. And this is not done on our initiative, but through the mighty decision of God. And through the work of Jesus on the cross, by which he purchased, redeemed, and restored a people to himself, through that same work, we are empowered to be kingdom workers in this world. We push back the wilderness, just as Adam was told at the beginning. But this time it's a new wilderness, the wilderness of unbelief. Everything that sets itself up against the will of God, we subdue it into the will and reign of Christ. Jesus taught us to pray together, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that, we go into the world and we seek that to become a reality here. We teach and we exhort the nations into obedience to Christ. We do that in every sphere, not merely philosophy or education, which is the way the, way the Australian church thinks about it, but in every sphere, business, politics, the arts, media, whatever you can think of, all of it needs to be brought underneath the rule and reign of Christ. We are sent out with a gospel purpose. We are Christ's workmanship, sent out into the world to be Christ's workers, to take dominion for Christ and to multiply. We multiply not now just through children, but the the promise has been expanded to all those who are afar off. And we preach the message to all those who don't belong to God and His kingdom so that they may come in to God and His kingdom. And so we multiply not through just having kids, which is a great way to do it, but we multiply through the proclamation of the gospel. It has all been greatly expanded. Our work is so much more meaningful and God promises us that we will be successful, that the knowledge of God will one day permeate the whole earth, that all will know Him. This mission of God is too big to be done by pastors. It cannot be done by pastors. They're not set aside to do that. They're set aside to equip the saints for the work of ministry. They're set aside to be leaders and teachers in order to help everyone else to go and do the task that God has called them to. So wherever God has called you, whatever job you have, whether you're a mother or a father or a husband or a wife, whatever vocation you have, God has called you there. And he's called you there to take dominion for his kingdom. He's called you there to do it excellently so that all may see what a new person made in the image of Christ is like, who apply themselves to the work that God has called them to with diligence and care to proclaim the message of salvation. These men and women will by no means fade into obscurity, but they will stand before the King of Kings and give an account. And they will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. 
if they have been faithful to all that God has called them to, with their families, with their spouses, and with their employments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for how broad and wide and vast the message of your gospel is. And we decry the fact that in the Australian church, we, we say things like gospel centrality, and then we draw a very small circle around the gospel. When your gospel message influences and infiltrates everything, that there is nothing outside your rule and reign. We thank you, Lord, like a master craftsman, how you made us your workmanship, how you rebuilt us and refashioned us and gave us a whole new set of desires to love you and to know you. We thank you that you have called us into your kingdom and you have not given us busy work, but work that will last into eternity. And I pray, Lord, that we would not build on the foundation you laid in our lives with things that will burn up in the fire, but things like precious stones and gold and silver that will be refined through the fire. We love you, Lord, for the opportunity we have here in Australia to glorify and honor you. We thank you for the opportunity to push back the wilderness, to see this earth subdued and brought beneath the feet of your son, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would be wise in all our undertakings, that we would be diligent, that we would be excellent, and that we would apply ourselves, and that on that day we will hear the words from you, well done, good and faithful servant. Would we be a church that is known for these things? I pray through the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.